This podcast is part of the Acast Creator Network. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the stand with Eamon Dunphy. Now this week one of the world's most renowned statesmen, Mikhail Gorbachev, died in Moscow. He was 91, the last president of the Soviet Union, which was a union of nations controlled from Moscow, and his place in history is assured because he was the last president. He was really the person who did more than anyone else to destroy and dissolve the Soviet Union and give freedom, liberation to many states who had been in that empire. And my guest today, John Kampfner, is one of the most distinguished British journalists and broadcasters and indeed authors. And John was working as bureau chief for the Daily Telegraph in Moscow and for Reuters as well at the relevant time when Gorbachev and Boris Yeltsin came to the fore in what seems to be a long time ago now, but certainly these men changed history. John, thank you very much for joining us. I want to talk to you later about a speech made by the German Chancellor this week, Schultz. But the passing of Gorbachev is a really interesting moment, and it's noteworthy that Vladimir Putin has said he won't go to the funeral and that Gorbachev won't receive a state funeral. Yeah, hi there, Eamon. Great to be with you as usual. I was really saddened um, by Gorbachev's passing. Not, not, it's not a tragedy in itself. He was an old man in, in, in failing health. But what it means, what it says, it's, it's really the final nail on our hopes and the hopes that we had. Maybe we were being naive. But we had those hopes ardently, and by we, I mean everybody yes. who loved Russia, and you know, and that included all my Russian friends. That finally, finally, after the, the awfulness of the Soviet era, after everything that came before, that Russia could, in its own way, very differently to everybody else, but in its own way, become a more liberal, a more open, a more democratic country. And the, I suppose when you look at it now, I mean, Gorbachev is either loved by, uh, by some or loathed by others. And a lot yes. of that loathing is manufactured by Putin and by Putin's people. But probably the historical legacy will be more nu nuanced, will be more mixed. Uh, for this reason, that, that Gorbachev was a brilliant visionary 
in his analysis of what has had been going wrong in the system in which he had grown up and he had grown to lead. Uh, he could see that uh, information uh, was coming to his citizens that allowed them to compare their way of life and their lifestyles with the United States and with yes. Western Europe. They could see that not only could they not afford things, but they couldn't travel, they couldn't do things, they, they, they sort of couldn't breathe. But also that the system that um, had been built up was atrophying and that if nothing was done, it would collapse. And what he was trying to do was to reform it from within. The problem with that was as soon as you tinker with it, the whole deck of cards came crashing down. He was ousted um, during the failed coup of August 1991, and I was there throughout this whole period. And when he came back, he was a, even though he was rescued, he was a, a, a completely a belittled figure and... Um, Boris Yeltsin had taken over, and by the by December, the Soviet Union was no more, and Russia was being led by Yeltsin and all its constituent other 14 republics were being led by different people. And Gorbachev's failure, but I'm not really sure it's a failure because I don't know if anybody could have done this, was not to work out what should come after. Yes. In a way that was sustainable for Russians. Um there was so much Western hubris at the time, yes. the end of history uh, thesis. I mean, I remember going to press conferences in the early 90s in the finance ministry and the economics ministry of Russia, and there were sort of Western advisors almost sort of pressing the buttons and almost sort of telling people what to say and what to do. And you could tell then any country with pride, and boy, Russia has pride, yes. uh, was going to feel humiliated. And the one thing leads to another, leads to another, and then you can say the straight line to Putin. Of course, history is never or should never be seen in straight lines. But it, it, it's one of those. It's going to be one of those great essay questions in the future. Could Gorbachev or could somebody like Gorbachev have created a new and different form of Soviet Union, which have both been sustainable for a longer period and more open to the world while retaining Russian characteristics? I, I don't know the answer to that. Yes, I mean, Glasnost and Perestroika, that is free speech, which he said, if people can't speak freely, they are dead people, which was a very telling and accurate comment. And Perestroika, which was reform, perhaps they weren't, as you say, possible. It's also said, and it was said to me at the time by a Russian woman I knew, don't forget, Eamon, he is still a communist. And he was a communist, whereas Yeltsin wasn't. I mean, that, that was a distinction that was made to me. In other words, he wasn't giving up on communism. And what he was trying to do, as you say, was reform it. But maybe that's a task, if people can't, it's a task that could not have been achieved. Nevertheless, he made the nuclear agreement with Ronald Reagan. He impressed Margaret Thatcher, who encouraged Reagan to do business with him, and do business was the word she used. This is a man I can do business with. It's not something you could ever say about his predecessors, or indeed about Vladimir Putin. Yeah, I mean, I took the same view as this friend of yours, Eamon, in, in mm. sort of distinguishing Gorbachev and Yeltsin. I think, with hindsight, we were probably wrong. Um, 
in that they were both products of the system. Yes. Um, Yeltsin was much more of a rumbustious sort of um, charismatic, I want it now type person. He was more of a revolutionary. He wanted to sort of throw everything up in the air and see where, where, where it all landed. Gorbachev was a more, or at least he wanted things to be more incremental. Um, in, in the end, I think they both wanted the same thing, which yes. was a, whether you called it the Russian Federation, whether you call it the Soviet Union. And don't forget, when the Russian Federation, when, when uh, the Soviet Union collapsed, um, I mean, we're getting into the weeds here, but when the, when the Soviet Union collapsed at the end of 1991, there were all the 15 different countries independent, but they were all going to come under an umbrella, or most yes. of them were going to come under an umbrella called the Commonwealth of Independent States. So in a way, it was almost like modeled on the British Commonwealth of sort of, there is a sort of, you know, I'm, I'm using old language, there is a sort of mother country and all the others are going to be loosely affiliated and they're going to sort of all be friends and do things together. But of course, if you've been under the Soviet yoke and under Moscow's yoke for a long time, you might agree to something just to get the hell out, but you're not going to, to stick to it. And most of the republics, and crucially Ukraine, just said, you know, we're out of here. So, yes. But I don't think Yeltsin was any more radical, any more pro-Western than, than Gorbachev was. And in many ways, Yeltsin's errors and his alcoholism in the second half of the 1990s opened the door for two things. Opened the doors for the endemic, chronic, state-driven corruption Yes, uh, that produced the oligarchs and just produced monopolies and uh, the hideousness of Russia. And it was those people, and it's so hilarious to think of it now, tragic hilarious, those people thought that they had found in Vladimir Putin the person that they could control. Yes, And let's bring in this gray man, sort of low-ranking KGB chief um, from St. Petersburg, and he'll just do his bidding, our bidding for him within weeks of of taking over on new year's day uh, 2000 putin was absolutely calling the shots yes and we're still coming to terms with that now john germany is is one of your specialist subjects your latest book why the germans do it better notes from a grown-up country has been a bestseller and a great success in your writing history of berlin at the moment i read a speech by Olaf Scholz, the new German chancellor, this week Angela Merkel's successor, which I thought was really fascinating. It was addressed to Europeans, and it had a lot to say about the changes Europe must embrace for the future. And coming at the moment that it, it's come, I thought it was fascinating. Am I wrong in my read of that? You're never wrong, Eamon. You're always right. You're always <laughs> right. I would never say you're wrong, um, but you happen to be right. Um, th there was an interesting subject. I mean, it was all addressed around European security, the Russia threat, defending Ukraine, uh, standing by Ukraine. It was it was trying to sort of close down a lot of the accusations against him of weakness, of prevarication. Um, you know, we will keep up support reliably and above all for as long as it takes he you know he was saying um 
you know, at the Charles University, incredibly old, beautiful uh, institution in Prague, which is probably synonymous as the great Central European um, city. So the um, I mean, the Czechs have the rotating um, presidency of the EU, um, but it was it was all very very choreographed to basically say, and the Germans, you know, uh, he did his great Seitenwender speech at the end of February. Then the accusation is that he went weak, and to a degree that's correct. This is a sort of, no, actually, I really do get it um, kind of speech. And it's important, and it's important for the Ukrainians. And it's interesting whether or not this is wishful thinking on all of our part, that Ukraine appears to be, after a, a lull over the summer and, and a sense of pessimism, it appears to be being rearmed, and Russia doesn't seem to be making any progress. This is going to be attritional. But there's that sort of sense of now sort of determination, talking about the right of, of Georgia and other former um, Soviet uh, republics, now independent states, um, to join the European Union and to join NATO. So it's, it's important in that. But there is an interesting thing that he didn't say that I'm picking up all over Europe. I'm also picking up in the UK. And it's so sad to, by the way, say them separately, but it happens to be yeah. true. Um, and that is everybody is frightened stiff of what's going on in America. And yes, and Biden <laughs> made yeah. a very strong speech last night, uh, which we are going to deal with later on this morning. It was a very, very blunt Absolutely. and very timely speech by Biden. But you've got a sense now in Europe that you've got the, we've obviously got the midterms in November. Democrats are going to do badly, but are they going to do as badly as had been feared? And you've got Trump after the FBI raid yes. in, uh, at his home in, my, in Florida, effectively calling on his supporters for insurrection. Yes. And th so you've got two things going on. You've got, we've got three things. You've got one, you've got the possibility of some sort of quasi-civil war. That's probably overstating it, but you've got the, the, the possibility, the fear of a great amount of violence that would make the January 6th uh, attack on uh, Capitol Hill seem small. Secondly, you've got the political, electoral, likely um, victory of the Republicans in November. And thirdly, you've got the likelihood or possibility of Trump or somebody like Trump winning again yes. and taking over in January 2025. And so if you're Europe, if you're Olaf Scholz, if you're Emmanuel Macron, if in a different context yes. you are Britain, uh, assuming that to be um, Liz Truss, and obviously the Brits have a different relationship. She's a sort of darling of the Republican right, but let's leave that to one side. Strategically, Europe is frightened stiff. What is going to happen? What is going to come of the fulcrum of European defense and security yes. in the United States. Either it's going to be taken over by the far right, this time far more determined than it ever was before. And even if it isn't, it's going to be absolutely enmeshed in ongoing strife. And I think that was the un one of the undertones that Schultz right. was saying, dear Europe, we've got to get our act together. Yes, because the United States keeps NATO, funds NATO, the United States is the most powerful country in the world of any description, but there is an unmistakable trend 
towards isolationism and the Republican Party, I think, as you say, he didn't explicitly say this, but Europe has to be cognizant of the fact that 69% of Republican voters do not believe that Joe Biden is the legitimate president of the United States of America. Yeah. That is a pretty frightening statistic because it doesn't only involve men with horns on their heads and AK-47s marching into the Capitol. It means mums and dads in the suburbs, I'm afraid, yeah, absolutely. who have given up on democracy. Yeah. And if we in Europe are going to be as... Schultz appears now to be determined to say that we are much more robust, much more resilient about kind of black and white, good and bad, democracy, dictatorship, um, in the way that we were at the end of the Cold War, and then somehow through globalization and mutual supply chains, we all became, and wishful thinking, we all became flabby. If we are going to be more delineated again, well, then we need to be strong. And can you be strong if your strongest member is fighting itself? Yes. And the question, well, many questions arose. One of them is the need for unanimity in decision-making in Europe. And Scholz points out that a country, let's say Hungary or Poland, one country can halt a process He's calling really for qualified majority voting, I imagine. But he also wanted to make it clear that the idea of German dominance, this period of German dominance, which we saw most recently during the financial crisis of 2008 and onwards, it, it was Schäuble, the German finance minister, and Angela Merkel who were calling the shots at that point. Mm. He makes it clear that that's not the way it ought to work. It's incredibly difficult for Europe, and this is one of the Boris Johnson, Liz Truss arguments, and it has a certain validity, it must be said, uh, that if you're one, you can be a hell of a lot more agile than if you are yes. 28. In, and if you are 28 and you have to wait until the slowest member or the most reluctant member has agreed to anything, then by its nature, you're going to be less decisive and less quick in your actions. And it is the case, and it is absolutely the albatross around the neck of the European Union. So uh, getting institutional reform, and it was always harder, the more the EU grew, and the more in growing it became more disparate and more diverse in terms of political and cultural social economic backgrounds, you know, the harder it was ever going to get to get the kind of unanimity it needs for important decisions quickly. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's two questions I want to ask you, John, before... I let you go. One is about the UK and the degree to which its departure from the European Union weakens the European Union significantly. And the other question is about an imminent general election on, I think, 25th of September in Italy, which may well throw up a right-wing government and it'll be quite seriously right, the leader of whom may well be extremely well disposed towards Mr. Putin. First, the question of, of the UK. We all look, I think, in, in this country with horror at the way they behaved over the Northern Ireland Protocol and indeed the spivvy way that Johnson achieved Brexit by doing a deal he'd no intention of honouring. And now we have... Johnson 2.0, or worse, in Liz Truss. A cabinet in Britain where relics of, of the past, John Redwood and Ian Duncan Smith might feature, and Jacob Rees-Mogg might be a very big player. So the world, as we understood it a decade ago, no longer exists, and it isn't coming back, is it? It's so interesting, this whole what's going to happen with... Britain and with trust. Uh, I mean, one way of looking at it is every time you think the country can't go any lower, it manages um, to find yes. somebody. And um, 
it, you know, it, it is, you, you look at the state of the Conservative Party and the Conservative Party's selectorate is 160,000 elderly people. They constitute 0.3% of the British voter. Um, and they're the ones who have chosen um, the new leader. And in this trust, they have chosen the most bellicose, the most um, black and white, low tax, deregulation, um, uh, Remainer. <laughs> Remainer turned, turned, turned no deal Brexiteer. Lib Dem. Lib Dem. Um, absolutely. But whatever position she holds today as the yes. one that she is completely vehement about and everybody else is lily livered. Um, it's, it's going to be a roller coaster. Um, in terms of foreign policy, she wants to be the great disruptor. I mean, there's so much to say about her, but I mean, the absolute items one to 10 in her intray are the desperate state of the British economy. Yes. I mean, every country is suffering, but in Britain, there is an absolute tsunami. Which has been desperately weakened, John. It's been, the British economy has been weakened seriously by Brexit. Yeah, but you'll never get her. You'll never. The, no, but Bre it is a fact. Uh, I mean, it is only, and, and only is still, there's a lot of people, but it's still, you know, it's a, it's a subset of the people who voted remain. A lot yes. of them are just like, oh, can't we just move on? Um, who who kind of get it, and who you know, people who uh, who voted leave uh, are never going to say, yeah, fair cop, we got it wrong. They're right. just never going to okay. psychologically. They're never going to, and we are lumbered with this. I mean, COVID it allowed politically uh, the Brexiteers to get away with it because everything got sort of uh, caught up in that, and and it's very hard to disentangle the, the direct Brexit economic effects from everything else. And the damage of Brexit is not just economic, it's social, psychological. This country is drifting away um, from Europe, and in, in her case, deliberately so. Um, but it's, you're not going to, that argument is is a fool's errand now. We're just not going to to make any progress on it, sad though it is to to admit. Does it disturb Germany? What, the advent of trust? Well, the Brexit, the whole Brexit N thing. No, no. No, no, no. no. They, they, they've, they've, they got over it a long time ago. Right. They thought they were, they were shocked. They were angered. Then they were just saddened, and now they're none of them. They are just like, well, you chose to do that. Yep. When Germans are incredibly pragmatic, you chose to do that. You know, we've moved on. You've moved on. Let's try and find a way of working together. They are, um, you know, they're less demonstrative than the French. I mean, Macron. <laughs> was so public in his disdain stroke contempt for Johnson. It was it was sort of beautiful. It was theatrical. Um, what will he be like with Truss? I mean, Truss is different. It was very similar politics, sort of even more extreme politics than Johnson because she believes, or at least she, she makes a better fist of believing this stuff. Um, but she's not going to throw parties. She's not going to sort of do buffoonery. Who'd go? Um, you know, thank, be thankful for small mercies. Um, you know, she will behave on the global stage. You know, she'll tuck her shirt in. She'll, you know, she will. Yes. She will behave on the global stage as a grown-up, um, whether or not they like that politics. Um, but I mean, she is spoiling for a fight. By the fifteenth of September, the Brits have got to respond to the European uh, yes. Union's uh, legal challenge on uh, ripping up the protocol, and all signs are is she is going to say, "Bring it on." Okay, uh, the Italian election. Yeah, I mean, it's so I, I sad. Just, uh, I mean, it's it's alarming and sad. I mean, Mario in Mario Draghi, 
um, former European Central Bank chief, um, Italy had its first, not just serious uh, prime minister, but also one who managed to hang around for more than you know yes. a few months. And who was making some genuinely good economic changes in the country? Italy was looking, and I keep on using this term, grown up. Um, and then what do they do? They chuck him out um, through the usual interminable. I mean, the Italian political constitution is so terrible; it sort of just takes two or three members of parliament who are just feeling a bit mischievous to to bring the whole deck of cards down. Yes, and we're going to have this. Uh, horrific potential um, right-wing alliance. Now, the one good thing about the European Union, we were talking about it, you know, the um, uh, the cumbersome uh, uh, institutional nature of it, but it is also, it. okay, Orban has been kicking up rough, but it is quite difficult, it will be quite difficult for the Italians to buck the trend on Russia. Um, what they've done is just given themselves more domestic mayhem. But the, the you know the, the strange thing about Italy is, as as anybody knows who kind of goes there, even if they just go there on holiday, is that they've had political instability. They've had either leaders who were quite good who didn't last, or leaders who were quite bad who did last um, for quite some time. And yet the country does function. Uh, it's a great mystery as to how it does. Okay, uh, we're very grateful to you for joining us. Uh, that's John Kampfner. Grateful to John. To all of you for listening, that's uh, all we have time for now. We'll talk to you soon. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.